all of a sudden to be a leaf lover as I was and say, holy cow, I'm interested in these leaves because they're evergreen in the tropics and I didn't know how long they lived. And I thought I could answer this very simple question, get this PhD behind me with absolutely very little work and who did <laughs> I try to fool? But when I got up there and found millions of insects eating the leaves and you know thousands of birds eating the insects and all kinds of food chains and interactions and photosynthesis and fruits and flowering and reproduction, all sorts of dynamics, I was just blown away. And I realized, holy cow, the foresters really were looking at the big toe of the patient. And now I needed to open up this world that we now call canopy science and study the whole tree, not just the bottom of the tree. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. If astronauts fly in space and aquanauts explore the ocean, what do you think an arbornaut does? The answer? They explore among the trees. My guest today, Dr. Meg Lohman, pioneered the science of canopy ecology. That means she drove the change from studying trees by looking at their trunks to looking at and even living in the tree canopy, where all the action really is. She made her first forays up into that leafy realm with rock climbing gear, firing her ropes up over limbs with a slingshot, and went on to build the world's first canopy walkways and even canopy rafts. Her pioneering methods led to the discovery that half of our terrestrial biodiversity, 50%, lives up in the forest canopy. Dubbed the Einstein of the treetops by the Wall Street Journal, and even better, the real-life Lorax by National Geographic, Meg has explored trees in Costa Rica, Colombia, Belize, Panama, Peru, Malaysia, Cameroon, India, Australia, and many other countries. Her life story offers keen insights and useful tips about being, or parenting, the unique kid who doesn't fit into any clique, on navigating unwelcoming cultures, and managing career and family demands. She's also got some important messages for scientists about the power of one, about scaling from local to global, and the need to develop strong communication skills. So now let's head up into the treetops with Canopy Meg. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Lohman, Canopy Meg, uh, such a pleasure to finally have a lovely chance for a long conversation with you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. After seeing each other at like ships in the dark at the Explorers Club and halfway around the world, we finally get to sit down together. I know. Uh, the marvels of Zoom. I'm finally grateful for Zoom. <laughs> you have had a really fascinating career, as you describe it, not studying just the big toes of trees, but actually the entire tree up in the canopy. And I, I want to get to that because I'm dazzled by that kind of work. But you also had a fascinating journey as a youngster and as a young woman making your way into a science career in the 60s and 70s. And I, I think there's so many nuggets of wisdom from your experiences and how you navigated that. So if you don't mind, let's start there, shall we? Absolutely. Sounds great. That's why I wrote the book in hopes that girls and boys would read my failings and misadventures <laughs> and maybe do it better next time. Yeah. Or at least not be so daunted by you know the hard parts that you come through because they're out there for everyone. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the young Meg Lohman growing up in Elmira, New York, a small town in upstate New York that when you come along is sort of starting to experience the decline of the loss of jobs in manufacturing. What was the young Meg Lohman like? And what, uh, you know, you say you learn a lot from a kid if you watch them play at ages three and four. Tell us about that Meg Lohman. So admittedly, I would have been called a geek if that word existed in the 1960s. I was definitely different. I was really the only nature nut in my school or my surrounds. So that was I think a laughing matter for most of my friends that I obsessed on collecting wildflowers and bird nests and going bird watching if I could. Um, I will admit I was not part of the cool crowded school that's painful and uh, I didn't really understand why everyone else was getting manicures or trying to go and look to the mall to look at what was on sale for dress fashions and of course the boys were all huddling in the school playground and picking out the cute girls. You know, the social scene in a small town like that can be pretty painful if you're not the center of all of that cult in a way. So there I was, but I did have nature as my solace. It led me to be a very shy child, I think in part because I didn't fit in with the in crowd and also because in the woods I needed to be quiet and it was comforting to me that I could be accepted by the trees and the birds as this person who never spoke. So I grew up a pretty shy kid and um, at the end of the day I'm grateful to two or three girlfriends who were loyal, different but loyal. Uh, they still live in Elmira and they were part of the social scene but because we lived in the same neighborhood and played together since age one practically, they did participate in my tree forts and were supportive when I brought little rocks home to try to identify which ones were quartz or which ones were fossils. So I had that small alliance and I'm very grateful for it. To this day, we're still close friends and they still marvel about what happened to Meg? How yeah. on earth did she end up how she did? But apparently the signs were clear early on. And I, I got the sense reading uh, Life in the Treetops, your first book. It, it was painful to kind of feel like you didn't belong, but you've kind of didn't really want to. I mean, you, you, your want, your longing to be with nature was very strong. So it wasn't like you tried to get into the cool kids and they rebuffed you, was it? Right. I think I had a very strong inner sense of loving nature. I'm sure if I had been 
you know, a glamour girl or had a mom that outfitted me in all the latest fashions, maybe I would have been part of the in crowd, but my parents were, you know, very loving and kind, but also as naive as I was, I think they obviously offered to stop the car when I saw a new wildflower, but I don't think um, they, you know, recognized what it took to maybe be part of the in crowd and neither did I. So I kept to my little geeky childhood. And in some ways, I suppose that's what makes me now so passionate about helping more diversity and being more inclusive in science, because I think I felt that I wasn't part of the in crowd for a lot of my own childhood. Yeah. And the in crowd doesn't have to be the socially boys dating makeup rock music. It, it can be the in crowd in a lab that just sort of settled True. and established and someone new comes in and doesn't feel like they're, they're kind of allowed to be physically in the lab, but they don't in a deep way feel that they belong truly right. to the group. Yeah. Right common, common feeling. Uh, and you had this very, I think you will agree with the phrase life-altering experience when you were 12. How did that come about? Sure. And that really, I think, kept my strength up was getting involved in a nature camp. It's crazy to think about, but I wrote the president of the Audubon Society in his lofty office in New York City and said, you know, dear Dr. Morton, I love birds, but no one else in my town does. How can I fix this? And he actually wrote me back, which is incredible. And as it turns out, he was friendly with the only director of a natural science camp for kids in the country at the time called Burgundy Center for Wildlife Studies. It was the offshoot of a fairly expensive day school in Alexandria, Virginia, but they did take seventh and eighth grade campers and they also took the odd few that weren't part of that school so I was really fortunate to apply and my parents were willing to drive me that whole distance to their little mountain campus in West Virginia where I spent two glorious weeks surrounded by 19 other kids that love birds and wildflowers I never even imagined such a thing I was in total heaven and when the director invited me back to work on the staff I was thrilled I washed dishes I swept floors I also got to teach trees and insects to kids that were just a couple years younger than I was because this director believed in that model of kids teaching kids, which scared me to death, but it was still <laughs> a really great experience. Yeah, but you joined that staff at like the ripe old age of 13, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> my first salary was $25 for the summer. Oh, I felt so wealthy. And I worked there for five summers, but it was just I lived for that. I lived through my school year in high school. My school was not one of these places where everybody probably was anxious to get their kids into. We had our share of high school pregnancies and certainly dropouts and drinking problems and all kinds of things that happen in a small town that doesn't have a huge economic base. So given all that, I lived for the summer and I did a lot of research for my teaching in the summer. I would go to the public library and take out all the little golden guides. I didn't have access to a very sophisticated library, but I really just studied my plants or my insects or whatever it was that I was supposed to teach the following summer with huge fear. I was so scared to sit in front of this little group <laughs> of sixth graders or seventh graders and tell them about insect eyeballs. But, you know, it was such a good experience for me. And it, I think, formulated my whole life. I'm so grateful. Well, it clearly also not taught you so much as I suppose forged in you 
some grit and resilience because you would push through that fear of getting in front of the sixth graders and, and you would right. do it. Right. And I'm sure you felt at least occasionally that wonderful, you know, sort of glowing moment where you saw a younger child's face light up and, and you felt what it feels like to share something you know with someone exactly. and have it exactly. really delight them. I actually went back just five years ago and built a canopy walkway for that camp. So that was a wonderful full circle. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah. So that camp experience was kind of your life preserver all the way through high school. And you ended up going to Williams College. You know, there are all sorts of reasons that 17-year-olds pick their colleges from size to close nearby or far away or a certain field. You're the only person I've ever met who chose their college because they had a forest. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. I, I, I narrowed it down, Princeton, Williams, uh, Yale, but in the end, I kind of crazy. I thought Princeton was too close to New York City and Yale was too urban. And Williams College, of course, not only had a forest, but it was surrounded by forests. So I did end up going there. My guidance counselor at my high school said, there's no such college. You must mean William and Mary because the level of that knowledge of smaller colleges wasn't so great at my yeah. high school, but I did go there and happily worked in that forest. And uh, you didn't have all happy experiences on campus and sort of wandered a bit in terms of picking your major, partly trying to find the scientific center that really appealed to you, but the gender ratios that you were encountering in, encountering in your science classes really impacted you. You talk about that a lot in your book. Yeah. Can, and again, you remember I'm, what that was like. And Sure. Because I was still that shy kid that wasn't resolute and resilient the way I think a lot of young women are today, which is fabulous to see. But I was the second class of women to be accepted at Williams. And we had a ratio still of one to five. Might sound great if you're the social butterfly, but for me, it was kind of daunting because most of my science classes were definitely male dominated. I vacillated between geology and biology, trying hard to avoid all the pre-med competition. And um, again, encountered faculty and students who didn't really think that girls belonged in that type of program. So I do detail some of the stories in my book. Um, for the first time, I'm sure my Williams College mates will go, what? Is that what was going on in the biology department? But never mind. Um, again, it's all different now, which is the good news. And I think the sobering knowledge is that for a lot of us, probably you too, Kathy, we had to overcome these hurdles that we took for granted. I never done, it never yeah, got me to tell anybody that was a problem. I just thought that was part of how you went to college, that you had to overcome these biases by perhaps some of the male professors at the time. It's uh, it's kind of like gravity, right? It was just a thing that was there that shaped how you went about your daily life. And it you know, never occurred to me back then, I'm sure to you either, that Oh no, you can actually just say this needs to change or right. you know this, this just doesn't work for me. You right. could have my area you could have said that and all the all the men and boys around you would have said, "Well, then that's why you shouldn't be here." Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have caused any change. <laughs> there was no equal opportunity officer or department yeah. or anywhere that you would go and report this either. It was just business as usual. Yeah. Yeah, and roughing each other up to see if you were tough enough to get through was sort of part of the culture. Not right. not here, let me help you, but see if I see if you can take it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh which did you end up taking your major in then? Biology at the end? Botany? Right. After being 
pretty unwelcome in the geology department. Even though I loved the idea of studying the landscape where trees grow, I went back to biology. I had initially left biology because it was so pre-med. There were so many courses that were all about blood cells and DNA, and not that that's not important. I just was looking for more field courses right. than the biology department offered me. But I did end up, in some ways, carving out my own major, um, doing a lot more field work on my own in the forest of the college. And of course, relying on that cadre of friends from that wildlife camp to bolster me in a sense. I went down to the Smithsonian and learned about bird skinning and taxonomy with some of my friends that ended up doing internships down there. So I had this little network at that young age, thanks to that wildlife camp. Wow. Powerful lesson. You know, so it is many decades later than that, more than you and I want to quite admit. We'll <laughs> just we'll just leave that hanging there for the moment. And in some ways, lots of things have changed for women going into the, the quote unquote hard sciences. In a lot of areas, a lot of departments, certain campuses, you know, not that much has probably changed. So if you reflect back on the whole range of your experience, are there some tips you would give to a young woman trying to make her way through high school science, not get lost at the algebra barricade and go into a career? Right. Absolutely. And I do talk to groups a lot, especially school groups and college groups, and try hard to address the women because I think they need to see role models as well, which I never had. But I always tell girls, be resilient and strong. Try to find that inner strength better than I did. I will confess that I was you know, probably apprehensive and my shyness didn't make me the star of the class. So I think that girls need to try really harder almost than boys to come out of that shell. And number two, I always encourage women to support other women. I think in our generation, there were fewer women that were part of a sisterhood. In fact, I've often too often seen issues where women don't help other women because they're kind of like you said, well, you better find your own way because I had to do that. And right. I just don't think that we need that in this world where there's still too few women at the decision-making tables for science and conservation. So I tell girls just, you know, create your sisterhood, help each other out as much as you can. And hopefully those two bits of common practical advice will be useful for them as they come through the ranks. And hopefully it's getting better. But I think, too, women need to be vigilant. I think there is a lot of bias out there still. Let's face it, we don't have the same ease of being equal because women still have the babies until science can fix that one and <laughs> give men the opportunity to have babies. We still have to take that time off or we have to, you know, get those hormones, unfortunately or fortunately activated that give women that nurturing role where they just, I think, lose a couple of years of competitiveness yeah. along the way. Yeah, that's clearly a big theme and big set of lessons from studying your life is that the ongoing challenge, because you're right, it's nowhere near over yet, and there's no obvious way around it, of balancing life, love, family, and vocation. And you know, men face that challenge as well, but it plays out differently for men and women because of the childbearing role right. uh, and because of the fact that, uh, in addition, if the female of a couple decides to, I want to be the vocation person, you be Mr. Mom, that family has now got a salary differential that's you know, sometimes Absolutely. 30 or 40% lower than it would have been if the husband 
stayed right. in the game. Absolutely so, true. Mm. Yeah. You know, I came along not that much before you, so very much the same era. And as you've been describing, all but one or maybe two classmates in college in my science classes, one or two women, maybe all the rest, male students, male professors, you know, secretarial staff was probably female, but that was it. But I found one or two men on the faculty in the geology department at UC Santa Cruz in who I did see mentors and could have enough rapport to you know, take some lessons from them and feel supported from them. Did you, did you really never have that kind of experience with any of your male professors? You know, I got a scholarship to Duke and started there, but the forestry school, again, had a crazy ratio, and most of them were studying board feet and really interested in trees. Trees as housing material, not exactly. trees. As, and yeah. so uh, one thing led to another, and I had a little incident, you know, of assault out on the jogging trail in Durham. So I just took all my little savings and went over to Aberdeen University thinking if I get a master's, and again, insecure woman, maybe that's better than trying to get a PhD and failing. So I signed up for this master's in a country where I'd never been. I'd almost never been anywhere overseas. And I will say Aberdeen was fabulous. I had mentors there that were male. Peter Ashton was one who was a tropical botanist who treated me very equally. And Charles Gimmingham was the heather expert, the Heathland ecologist. And he was a gentleman and a scholar and it was the first time I experienced that, which was great. And uh, that, you know, kind of emboldened me to go on to Sydney University and give that a go because I got a scholarship there to go back to the PhD program, which I thought was going to be more useful working in tropical forests than to go back to Duke and work in the temperate forests where so many people before me had done similar kinds of work. Um, and Peter Ashton is really my inspiration there. He said, man, nobody studied in the tropics. No botanist should do anything but go to the tropics because we need to understand it and explore it. So he piqued wow. my interest that way. Yeah. Well, and a chance to break new ground, not just right. try to find a little bit of something novel in the in the wake of someone else's footsteps. Um, I'm wondering, I think, am I hearing the dog next door I, now and then? No, you're hearing my dog. Your dog, okay. I well, the dog walker here for an hour and unfortunately. Well, that's that's all right. You know, Zoom sound. In the era of Zoom, pets are always welcome. So, okay. so not, Poor little not thing, but he's, yeah. he's so rambunctious. It's a black lab that if I let him out of his kitchen area, he would jump all over me and I would never get a word in it. <laughs> Yeah, it's I have a, like a symphony in the background. Oh, I think it's perfect. And I have a small puppy on my lap who usually I've seen something yeah, walking around the bed. Usually sleeps very quietly right next to me, but I apparently is feeling a bit needy uh, today. So there you go. Uh, but yes, well, you know, this is the very human touch of the Zoom era. Good. So it's all it's all good. Yeah. So <laughs> it's hard to think of something more extreme in terms of environmental change on Earth than going from the northern latitude, dark, damp, always dank, if not outright wet, gray and cold, northeastern Scotland <laughs> to Sydney, Australia. That must have been some kind of a shock. You set off there all on your own? Totally, totally. It's just so crazy. And to be honest, the bigger change was the cultural one that I hadn't quite appreciated having had this lovely experience in Aberdeen, which was 
perhaps unique in the 1970s and then head over to Australia where again, I got the same ratio as the Duke Forestry School here. What's a woman doing a PhD for? And nobody was studying rainforest in the entire community of Sydney University, wow. which just shocked me. I thought I would be joining a team to study this relevant, important ecosystem, but it just wasn't on the radar in that country. And it was mostly on the radar to cut it down. And uh, the other thing in Australia, which was really fun, though, was that most students were interested in coral reefs because they had that fabulous yeah. Great Barrier Reef. So I was surrounded by mostly male uh, scuba divers who were there to study coral reef fish. And lo and behold, that gave me a huge in with rainforests because, you know, the two most diverse places in the world are coral reefs and rainforest canopies when it comes to biodiversity. So in the end, by default, I got a set of colleagues who dove down, whereas I climbed up, but we had a lot in common in terms of the questions we asked for our research. Wow. So what else was different about the culture as you found it in Sydney? First of all, you know, Sydney is an international town. So in some ways, if you go to Sydney, Australia, you go, wow, this is fantastic and cool. But the heartland of the country and some of the places where I drove to get to trees and visit rainforests in remote places were surrounded by a culture where women just don't do these things. Women don't do science. They definitely don't climb trees. Can you imagine? I was just this big anomaly and they looked at me like <laughs> kind of... I don't know what Godzilla has attacked the ecosystem. <laughs> they couldn't believe when I showed up with my boots and my vest and my leeches crawling up my legs. They're like, this woman is demented. <laughs> <laughs> An alien has landed amongst exactly. us. <laughs> Let's talk about trees now. When did you actually, well, let me take it at a different angle. You've written so brilliantly about how all the earliest studies of trees for decades, if not for a century, amounted to, to use a comparison, trying to understand human beings by studying only their big toe, because it was all done at the ground. And, and the common measurement, for example, is that the diameter of a tree at breast height. And they don't mean the breast of the tree, they mean your breast, however exactly. high you are as a human being. <laughs> there could be 120 feet of canopy above you, we're just going to ignore all that. I mean, it's incredible that there was that narrow and you know, dismissive of a mindset about what a tree is. Yeah, I just find that amazing. And that's, of course, my advice to kids again, saying, you know, an ordinary person like me, and I was like the quintessential ordinary from this small town doing nothing exceptional, can indeed found a new science or make a new discovery that's very life-changing. And just to think of all those foresters walking through these different stands of trees, estimating their board feet, only seeing the top of a tree when they cut it down for the right. most part. And either the birds flew away or their insects got squished. They had no idea of what- And they, and they didn't care because they were after the housing material. Exactly. Yeah. And they probably yeah. burned the canopy to bits. So all of a sudden to be a leaf lover as I was and say, holy cow, I'm interested in these leaves because they're evergreen in the tropics and I didn't know how long they lived. And I thought I could answer this very simple question, get this PhD behind me with absolutely very little work and who did I- <laughs> try to fool but when I got up there and found millions of insects eating the leaves and you know thousands of birds eating the insects and all kinds of food chains and interactions and photosynthesis and fruits and flowering and reproduction all sorts of 
dynamics, I was just blown away. And I realized, holy cow, the foresters really were looking at the big toe of the patient. And now I needed to open up this world that we now call canopy science and study the whole tree, not just the bottom of the tree. That's why I had that analogy to the doctor looking at yeah. you. So you started with basically mountaineering gear, ropes and anchors to some degree and ascenders, little ratchet devices that you can slide up a rope easily and then it grabs. So it gives you a handhold everywhere. And you would get the ropes over, <laughs> over the branches of the tree with a slingshot and initially a homemade slingshot. So you need to tell me about that, about bringing slingshots into the rainforest and, and why, why it was harder to get a permit for a slingshot in the outback <laughs> of Australia than to get a permit for a gun. Yeah. What's that about? So when I first decided I wanted to study leaf longevity and leaf dynamics and told my advisor, he said, well, you'll probably have to get up to the top of the tree then. And I said, oh my gosh, no way. Couldn't I train a monkey? Couldn't I use binoculars? Couldn't <laughs> there, I... Are no, there are no drones at this point in time. Exactly. So he said, no, I think you'll have to figure out how to climb the tree. And ironically, I was going to New Zealand with all the coral reef guys to a conference and they grandfathered me in, said there's no rainforest conferences within a zillion miles. So let's send Meg to this conference as well. And I met up with the people who ran Waitomo Caves, which is a national park in New Zealand. And they said, hey, we're going on an expedition to find moa bones at the bottom of the cave. Would you like to come? And I said, wow, why not? You know, experience everything while you can. And so I joined up with them at midnight and they put a caving helmet on me and a headlamp and told me how to slide down this rope, which was wild and crazy. I thought I might never see my the day of light again, but it just all of a sudden dawned on me. It was such a eureka moment. I thought, gosh, I could use this gear and maybe go up. And I came back to Sydney University and immediately joined the caving club. And those days there weren't recreational catalogs. There really wasn't a good yeah. amount of recreational climbing. Again, we're in the 1970s. So I did rely on that little group of cavers who thought I was nuts. They're like, why would you want to go up a tree when you can go down a beautiful dark cave? But they were kind enough to lend me their industrial sewing machine so I could make a harness. And I used the shop at Sydney University to help get some help welding the slingshot. And I borrowed the ropes from the cavers. Um, so that's how I got my first wow. climb. And it was pretty fascinating. It was extraordinary. And of course, today, there are whole outfitters for recreational tree climbing, and there are certainly plenty more arborists. Arborists used to be, you know, a field that was pretty wild and woolly, and a lot of people just free climbed trees to saw off a branch or some such thing. So there's been a huge, you know, game-changing opportunity where, you know, companies now sell this type of gear, and yeah. certainly the same for slingshots, which... By the way, yes, you did have to get a permit in Australia. You could own a shotgun. We had four shotguns on the farm when I finally ended up on a sheep farm. And yet slingshots required a permit and they were considered highly dangerous. So no <laughs> shotguns are fine, but don't let anyone have a slingshot. That's amazing. <laughs> Another gadget you talk about in uh, in life in the treetops that I confess I just utterly cannot comprehend uh, what is a tree bicycle? You talk about using a tree bicycle to go up a tree. And right. I, I'm not going to try to describe the picture in my mind because it makes no sense from a physics point of view. But what? Yeah. What? It, yeah. tell me about that. 
So a couple of my friends at the Missouri Botanical Garden, one in particular who is unfortunately deceased named Al Gentry, a very astute and wonderful adventurous field botanist, kind of piloted this gadget where you literally pedal it and then it grabs the trunk and ascends the tree trunk. It can only be used though on a straight trunk, ideally a telephone pole if you follow me. Yeah. The minute it hits a branch, it ceases to operate. It's a little damaging to the trees. So it wasn't really appropriate for me to use, but it was great for those botanists who wanted to collect a fruit or a flower, which is oftentimes needed to identify a tropical tree. So Alan was famous for his tree bicycle, but I wouldn't recommend it any more than I would recommend spurs because things that do gouge into the trunk tend yeah. to be damaging over time. Yeah. But that was the day when everybody was thinking, how do we get up there? We don't have any good methods. And you either had to haul out all this climbing gear like I did or end up building canopy walkways like I did or get a million dollars to put a canopy construction crane up in a national park, which took a lot of permitting. So yeah. it wasn't, I hate to say it, Kathy, but there wasn't the NASA budget to support <laughs> exploration. <laughs> yeah, there's not one for the oceans either, which I've it lamented truly, frequently. Uh, wow, so that's crazy. So it actually looked, it would look like a bicycle, but with it like did. seriously was, grabber wheels instead uh -huh. of tires. Right. All right then. I was close to the right mental picture, but just couldn't get there. Could and when I was pregnant, you might have noticed I used a cherry picker because yes. my tummy was too big for my harness. But admittedly, I could only use a cherry picker in dry forest. At that time, I was studying the dieback of the gum trees. and But in the rainforest, a cherry picker could never have navigated through all sink, the money. Ruts sink and up to its axle and right. go nowhere. Yeah, exactly. You got involved with looking at the dieback of the gum trees, the eucalyptus and others that Australia is so famous for and that the koalas so love. It's on that pathway that you ended up for, we were in Australia for a decade and for many of those years as a grazier's, a farmer's wife. That culture must have really been amazing to you. Right. You know, I thought I'd seen it all as a graduate student surrounded by males and trying to work in the rainforest and climb trees. But when I did move into the outback culture, it was a big, big shock. And I married a grazier because he had 5,000 acres of trees. It's kind of a joke. I call it my tree dowry. And also I, my girlfriends tease me that he was the only eligible bachelor for a thousand square miles. <laughs> oh, that's probably true. <laughs> so there I was at the age of 30, probably the biological clock ticking, but he was a clever, smart, funny guy. He had this amazing property and I don't mind living in isolation. And I love being surrounded by trees dead or alive. And I loved the challenge of that. What I didn't anticipate was how that outback culture frowned upon women doing anything outside of the kitchen. And in particular, my in-laws were staunch, conservative, valued persons. Um, even some of their, our neighbors objected to the way my mother-in-law tried to diss me from doing anything with my past life of science. And to the point of almost cruelty, um, I, she thought she was helping me by telling me that I absolutely couldn't do any of these things or refusing to babysit if I wanted to go to the university. But in the end, it just absolutely suffocated me. And I think my now ex-husband looked upon me as some kind of flower that was wilting because his parents were just so tough on me. 
And, um, you know, it was a difficult thing because it was tough for him too. I think we couldn't be that next generation that fortunately a lot of young people perhaps can by now. Yeah, that's changed in a number of ways, at least uh, here in the United States. But Right. And I think it still exists probably in parts of Australia. I keep in very close touch with a lot of my women friends. Were, they were such great supporters. You know, we had to drive miles to have a yeah. little you know, get together or a cup of tea and let our babies play together. And my kids didn't have sidewalks or bicycles or libraries or bookstores. So, you know, that camaraderie was really critical. And yet we were all in a position where for most of them, there was no occupation possible except house referee. There were no stores to own or operate. There were no creative outlets to be entrepreneurial. So they really were relegated to that life, that no matter what their aspiration might have been. Yeah. And some of them, perhaps, I'm sure, aspired to that life, which, yes. you know, yes. it's, it's a perfectly respectable way to live a life. It just right. And, you know, it's fantastic. You. I actually valued, you know, the four or five years I spent as a housewife because my mother-in-law was so hard on me. And as I look back, I know it was great for me and my kids. And it was certainly harmful to my career because it put me way behind my peers. Um, but at the same time, you know, if only society would treat us a little bit more like medical doctors where you can work part time, you can lose the publication trajectory and then just go back to it yeah. and have dignity, it would be great. But in the world of science, you have to publish, you have to get tenure and be promoted. So it's a very tough world, I think, for women to take those years out of their career. Yeah. And there's a sweet spot age-wise that all of that is expected of you. So it's the system is unforgiving if you right. yeah. do that yeah. in a different timeline. Yeah, absolutely yeah. true. I don't know why, but having babies seems to be at the same time that the career um, Cl kind of climb the ladder being yeah. measured. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You either climb career Everest or you have children, and it's not our problem. That that's sort exactly of mindset. <laughs> You're familiar, I'm sure, with the common view that we learn more from our failures or our mistakes or the hardships we have to endure than we do from the easy times. I'm wondering if that rings true for you in terms of your time in Australia and specifically dealing with the, the cultural dynamics yeah. that you, you encountered out on the station. It absolutely does. And I will say now that I work in so many different countries, I think I counted up 46 at last count. It's really helpful for me when I work in places like Ethiopia or India, where many women in rural parts are not given equal status to men. It gives me a lot of empathy, a lot of ability to try to transcend those issues instead of dismiss them because I have a sense of how it feels. I will say that I think I spent a lot of time in agony and probably aged myself in many ways by having to struggle through those anxieties. So I wished it had never had to be part of my lifestyle to go through that angst. Um, so I don't wish it upon any woman, but it's out there big time. And I think we all need to, again, work together as a sisterhood and try our best to overcome it. Yeah. Well, let's go back to those trees in those forests. You describe you describe trees as being adventurous. I want to ask you to elaborate on that. And there's also you know, a show streaming on one of the services now called Intelligent Trees. And I'm curious if you would agree that trees are also intelligent, as, as that program title implies. I think uh, as I look back on my work, you know, 
what amazed me about trees is there are so many strategies. And in certain case, I think I define the canopy as 50,000 shades of green. There is no such thing as a leaf. There's this amazing machine called a tree with all sorts of, you know, penthouse condominiums and basement apartments. And all of these leaves are in different environmental conditions and have different chemistry and different size and different things living on them and with them and against them. So it's this extraordinary complex world that we never knew. Now, similarly, every species of tree, you layer that on top of each canopy being different, and then you have each neighbor being different, and all of a sudden you have all of these different strategies. So I guess that's why I call it adventurous trees. Some of them try to you know, accelerate their growth to get to the top first, the, my favorite one, the fig, starts at the top and goes down. Other trees try to build really dense wood, so they're always firm and standing still. Other trees try to invest in root systems. I did work on mycorrhizae. The intelligent tree theories are mostly coming from people who study root systems, although there was a very cool guy named Jack Schultz in the 1980s that studied the chemicals that leaves give out, which is another intelligence factor for trees. They warn other trees about insect defoliation, for example. So really, there, there's actually tree to tree signaling at the canopy level? Absolutely. And that was piloted in Hubbard Brook in New Hampshire in the 1980s. Wow which is fabulous and got a lot of attention about tree communication. Uh, the root systems is a little more recent, but we were working on root systems also in Australia in the 1980s in a very diverse forest, which tropical forests tend to be. There's less communication with root systems because they're usually competing against neighbors. But in a place like the Pacific Northwest or maybe Maine, where there's only two or three main species of trees, the business of nurturing the neighbor or communicating to your young is much more prevalent, as you can imagine. So the communication thing is very localized with certain kinds of ecosystems and trees that tend to live near their neighbors, I mean, near their own kind, which we call conspecifics technically, and less frequent probably in these areas of extraordinarily high competition where you may not want to warn your neighbor about an insect outbreak or you may not want to share water with your neighbor. So even that begets this extraordinarily complex situation, which I go back to the fact that yes, trees must be intelligent and they must be adventurous because there are so many strategies. It's not hmm. one tree equals one tree equals one tree not one leaf equals one leaf equals one leaf. They all are there with a slightly different physiology and purpose. And I could have spent a lifetime in one tree canopy just trying to put those pieces together and figure it out. I view the tree as the perfect machine. You know, it produces oxygen and takes gas exchange to a next level and controls our climate. And it's doing that while we sleep and we don't have to pay it. We just have to leave it alone. <laughs> I want to come back to a phrase you used as you were talking through that about taking care of their young. Probe that a little more for me, because my first reaction was, isn't that you know anthropocentric projecting, or how do we yes. know that's not us projecting human concepts onto right. what's going on? And I think it is to a certain degree, absolutely. It's become a popular concept. I think humans are always looking to put anthropogenic issues into things that may not have that function, especially by yeah. We try to shy away from that as scientists. 
the fact that a, a tree might share um, its root system in nutrients and water with its offspring is just simply survival of the fittest. And the fact that other trees might avoid doing that with a competing neighbor is right. also survival of the fittest. So I think it's a matter of how we use the words and okay. there are popular ways to define it. Yeah. And- scientific ways to define it and you know scientists are always very aware of staying on the edge of that conversation but I look at trees really as this machine as I said and their resilience one of the things that I discovered from my research is that insects eat about 25 percent of many trees foliage every year wow new they could suffer that amount of damage and still stay healthy and that's a huge concept for us to appreciate with climate change coming on because hotter, drier conditions lead to more insect outbreaks. So we need to understand what is that tipping point for a tree before it dies. And the fact that it might lose a quarter of its foliage in an average year gives it a huge level of toughness and resilience that we never appreciated before. Yeah, that's a very different perspective than than I certainly had. You you touch lightly in your books on a topic I'd like you to expand on a little more here, and that's you know, the complexity of the problems and the challenges that forests represent, that you know, intricate interweaving of social and political and economic and biological and, and broadly speaking, cultural forces that all together combined shape human relationships to forests, how we look at them, what we think of them, what our views are on their purpose, their utility, uh, their value. That's a huge tangle to try to deal with in any given forest. Have, have you found any sort of more successful than others approaches uh, at a community level, for example, to working forest issues across all those axes? Sure. Uh, yes and no. I mean, it still is a huge challenge, but obviously that's part of my life's challenge. I think if we look at the history of forest science, again, it really fostered in the temperate zones. You know, think if Oxford and Princeton and Harvard had all been located in were in Buenos Aires or Delhi, um, we would have a very different view of forests because in the early days, people were simply going out to whatever existed off the campus in studying the habits of those trees. So as a result, we got a lot of biased information thinking that soils and forests are always rich, thinking that leaves fall every year and turn over, thinking that forests can easily be replaced and regenerated because most temperate forests are fairly simple with their composition. And bingo, we go to the tropics, apply those principles and we messed up big time. We found that, oh my gosh, all the nutrients are in the above ground biomass. The soils are not rich. Oh my gosh, there's, you know, 800 different species in a square hectare. How are we ever going to regenerate something like that? And of course, the leaves, in my case, I found out live up to 20 years. So we have this huge different ecosystem dynamic going on in the canopy. So all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a very complicated place. And we've blown it in many countries by taking our temperate bias to the tropics, applying it and having, and also telling people they needed to follow our orders. A little colonialism, I think, (laughs) was in operation, not a little, a lot. A lot, yeah. So now we're One mental model that we presumed was universal 
and only discovered it wasn't when it fails right. so miserably in other right. settings. It would be like your take going to Mars and assuming there's oxygen and plants and you're just going to land <laughs> yeah. and get out of your rocket ship and it'll all be fine. Well, and we went to the tropics and thought the same thing and boy, <laughs> were we wrong. <laughs> Wait, you mean there's no tree for me to sit in the shade of on Mars? Wait. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Um, so yeah, so here we are scrambling. But in the meantime, we found this resource down there called Timber and every Everybody wanted to cut it down. We thought the soil was rich, so we thought, oh, we could put cattle there and soybeans and all these other crazy things that aren't really working out in the long term. So we have blown it in a big way. And I go back to your original question, how, how can we improve the model or what can we do? The biggest component that I've discovered in my work in many countries is local trust and local friendship. It's not the publications I have, it's not the number of data points that I have in my notebook, but it's creating those friendships. And it might mean in Ethiopia, praying with the priest for a couple hours every day. I sure don't get promoted for that back here in the States at any institution, but that's the only way that I can make forest conservation work by becoming part of the local community. And everywhere that we work in forests, the locals are the stewards. We can rush to Brazil and I'll say, shame on you, don't cut down your trees, but then we fly home and they're gonna do whatever they want or need to do because yeah. they are the stewards of the landscape. And until we can be part of their team and be integrated as part of the family locally and share our concepts, our values, you can't imagine how it must felt to go to Ethiopia and show them Google Earth images when they'd never had a computer or a cell yeah. phone or any kind of visual. And they're just immediately they understood, my gosh, there's no more forest left. And they wanted to work to save their trees. It was that simple coming from a person they trusted, sharing a little technology, then figuring out a solution. But I think up to now, we've probably overlooked the importance of gaining that local trust because it does take time and energy. And maybe here's where women can be successful because it's kind of the mom concept to go in and become friendly and you know get to know the families and be trusted and all that kind of thing. So speaking of forests, <laughs> well, to see it as to understand that you know the health of the forest is is rooted in relational dynamics between and among the trees right. and also in the relational dynamics of the people with the forest. Absolutely. You to approach your work as a set of relationships with both the people in the forest, not as a transaction. Here I have some data here. I have some instructions right. for you. Right. And going back to the priests in Ethiopia, they gave me so much insight because they said to my Ethiopian colleague, who is the key to my success because he is local, they said, Alamayu, why do you collect data about tree seedlings and numbers of species? That's not going to save our trees. We want you to help us save the trees. So, you know, and then I came in, of course, and helped fundraise and created this very simple idea with them of building stone walls around the forest. And they all clapped and said, thank you, thank you. So now I have a local colleague and I am the global colleague and we have this huge success. And here's my wild and crazy thought, Kathy, but what if university provosts started promoting people based on saving acreage of forests or creating community partnerships, not the number of publications on your CV, which don't really, in the end, 
on the ground, save the forest. This is a wild thing. And everyone tells me over and over because universities are so conservative because they would never be so radical. But I think some smart college president needs to go there and create this faculty that's action oriented to save our planet. And one other interesting aside is I'm part of the Google think tank, the Google SciFu camp group, which is right. Yep. And right now they're banding about this idea. The IPC is CC is great. The committee is great. They produce a report. But what if they spent those thousands of hours creating an action plan to absolutely on the ground right. turn around global warming? And I'm just watching this conversation unfold as people start to maybe question all of this writing, all of this sitting in a room activity when you know, the the city is burning around us type of thing. So I wonder if science will in some way maybe make a, you know, game-changing shift to try to address issues a little more directly instead of these old concepts of what success really means. And focus on impact in, in a more tangible real world sense, not in the numbers of papers and numbers of times you're cited, uh, which is right. exactly. a common academic metric yeah. of impact. Um, we're coming close to the end of our time. I have to ask you to tell us about Canopy Observatories. You have been, you know, an anchor player of the, you know, now sort of still small but global community that's put walkways and cranes and and rafts, canopy rafts. Tell us what a canopy raft is and, and how many of them are there now around the world, and you know, where can people? Can everyday average people who are just curious about getting up there uh, go up on walkways and rafts and experience that incredible view? Right. Well, there's a three-hour question, but I'll try to answer in three minutes. <laughs> um, first and foremost, there's only one canopy raft, I'm very sad to say. It costs about a million dollars to fly it with 50 scientists, produces fabulous research. But again, there just haven't been the sponsors for it over time. And it's where, not, where is that raft? It's housed at the Institute of Botany in uh, Montpellier, France. It was originally designed by some French engineers. So I give full credit to my colleagues in France for pioneering that. And we've, over time, I've been a permanent part of that expedition and we've tweaked it and improved it. We've developed a little sled that's a portable piece of the raft that we can tow around the canopy and do fabulous things. But it's mostly and mothballs, which is really, really heartbreaking. And how big how big is this raft? You have a couple of pictures in treetops, yeah. but hard to get a sense of scale. I know it's not big. It's about 12 meters across and it's around so 36 feet ish. Yeah. 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 And then the, the sled part, the little piece of the pie of the raft is about, you know, say 10 feet by 10 feet that we can put two or three researchers in and the hot air balloon kind of tows that very gently across the tops of trees. If we want to do rapid sampling of insects or collect flowers over 20 trees in one hour or something like that. Um, it's fantastic as a tool, um, but it's limited. It's a one only. And again, there haven't been too many sponsorships of it. Um, Canopy Walkways, which is kind of my baby since I was part of the first design in Australia, have now replicated around the world where we have a a map, an interactive map on my website, which is treefoundation.org that you can poke on every site that has a walkway and see cool. pictures of it and use of it. And I'm gonna say there's 60 to 70 of those. 
not each one is equal. Some of them have been built in a hurry and don't really maximize your biological experience. It's more of a just, oh, wow experience. Yep, but yep. The best ones go near enough to the canopy so that research can go on as well as education. Um, and they are hopefully going to be my swan song as I move into the world. And I'm working closely with your friend, Sylvia Earle, who started her mission blue to identify hope spots in oceans. And I've started a parallel program called Mission Green to build walkways in hot spots of forests that are highly endangered because the ecotourism industry can provide sustainable income yeah. to indigenous people and at the same time save the forest the trees. and provide yeah. So that's my dream. And so I'm hoping to build 10 of those walkways in the next 10 years once COVID is behind us, because then we can save, for example, Madagascar, which is in desperate shape. Yes. Ethiopia. Um, India is interested because they don't have a lot of access to their forests for the people um, and um, other places that really desperately want to have the knowledge of the forest shared and yet an income opportunity created for some of the locals that's not cutting the trees down. Yeah, that is that is so important. You also benefited in a lot of your field work, and I, I think most of the mentions of this were about your field work in Australia, but I could be wrong. You had a lot of people who were volunteers that came to you through a program called Earthwatch. I'm curious how you first stumbled on or learned about Earthwatch, and tell us more about how that helped you get your PhD and your subsequent research done. Right. So I guess in that sense, I was one of the first scientists to deploy what we call citizen scientists, people who volunteer to come and help you with your research. And I was so lucky. Earthwatch opened an office in Australia and by some fortuitous moment, I read about it in a magazine or saw it in the newspaper and ended up writing again, the CEO in Boston who took a liking to me, a very entrepreneurial guy named Brian Rosborough who left venture capital and said, why don't I provide venture capital to scientists? Well, what do scientists need? They need labor in the field. And he you know, piloted this amazing market of generating human labor for research expeditions. And they especially loved my butt up a tree. There were a lot of posters <laughs> made of me at the top of a tree. And it, that's about the most sexist thing that anybody ever did with my body. But it was just fun <laughs> to know that I could be a poster child for something somewhere. Um, and anyway, that was a great inroad to me. And since then, of course, I take expeditions to the Amazon and I recruit my own citizen scientists. I was part of the group. I was the director of science at the Cal Academy when we hired this team called iNaturalist and I helped set that program. Right. So there have been over the years for me, a lot of places where I took that success with my research and was able to apply it as a leader in other places to make sure that the citizen science model is now really global and very, very robust. Well, and what a fantastic experience that Earthwatch provides so many people, but its contributions are just huge. I didn't know the great. backstory of how it got founded, so thank you for that. Yeah. And my final question, uh, Meg, because you you muse about it, you speculate about it off and on, again, in, in your book, Life in the Treetops. My final question is, your two young boys, Edward and James, started going out in the field with you and even up into trees with you at very early ages. And you muse in your writings about how those early experiences might influence them and whether 
either of them will grow up to be a tree climber or a scientist or or run the other way, perhaps. <laughs> so they must be in their 30-ish young men at this stage. Have they followed in your footsteps? I think they actually have. And I will give a shout out to both of them because I think having kids as a single mom, which I was, meant that I did retain my sense of wonder through their eyes. The one good thing about hauling your children in the field is that they are full of questions and curiosity. And aside from the fact that I had to probably take bags of homework and extra food items and lots of crazy things in the field when I brought my children, they did in turn give me a better sense of what I was doing and probably help me communicate my science more clearly. So James is now uh, studying, whereas I study 100 million things, which is what we think could live in the canopy, he's studying 3 trillion things. He has a company that works on the microbiome, which is all this stuff that lived inside you, these very cool things that are now turning out to be totally responsible for our health. And his company, Finch Therapeutics, and his nonprofit called Open Biome just went on the stock market. It's that successful. So I like to think, whereas I had to raise, you know, $25 for a butterfly net, he has to raise a half a million dollars or probably five or $10 million at a time for one little trial on something that impacts your inside. So he's going gangbusters with that. My older son, Eddie, is fabulous. He does clean energy policy. So he works on energy storage with people like Tesla or energy policy with the states of Arizona. They're trying hard to get inroads in Florida, which desperately needs better energy policy. And he and his wife both work on that together as consultants out in San Francisco. So they're both at least trying to make the planet a better place, even though they don't climb trees anymore. (laughs) That's uh, too bad. I mean, how many little kids when they're six, eight, nine up in a tree branch somewhere? I, I remember I certainly did. Wished and wish there was some way I could get even higher, but the branches were getting way too thin. And <laughs> and wished that you could just you know play play outside and climb trees forever for a living. And and you've done both. <laughs> I guess I have, for better, for worse. But I am recruiting more Arbornauts. And I hope my latest book, The Arbornaut, will inspire more a succession plan. Because I realize it's really important to double and triple whoever is out there doing what needs to be done. And forests sure need attention. And um, there's so many species up there we have never yet laid eyes upon. And I'm calling on all listeners, Kathy, to be recruited. <laughs> And I will, I'll endorse your call, follow, follow in her footsteps, follow in her tree steps, at least with respect to paying closer attention and regaining your sense of wonder about whatever forest is closest to your home. You can start right there. Great idea. Hey, thanks so much. Well, Meg, it's delightful talking to you Uh, again, Life in the Treetops, which came out a couple of years ago and the Arbonaut, which just came out this past August. Great insights about women in science, leading a career, balancing family, love, career, holding true to yourself and get through the hard times and keeping your sense of wonder through it all. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kathy. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to Kathy Sullivan Explores dot com.